He is more than you could ever need. He's more than the eye could see. I don't deserve his love, but he's always been there for me. You see, Jesus met me when I was at my lowest. And if you don't know Jesus, know this. He is the greatest example of generosity this world of greed has ever seen. And when Jesus hit the scene, he changed the scenery and met diversity with serenity. If you're looking for peace, he offers plenty. Jesus was and Jesus will forever be king. And when the angels sing, they sing of the grace that was displayed for sinners like me. I can't explain him and I can't describe him. And if I could, he wouldn't be Jesus because you can't explain eternity and you can't comprehend the galaxies. But it was the loving hands of Jesus who spun them into existence and created man knowing he would go to the cross to pay our sentence there was a certificate of judgment with a period after the sentence and we were sentenced to death long before he said it is finished he is a father to the orphan a shelter for the homeless a hiding place for the abused and an anchor for our storms he stormed the gates of hell and came out on top and the power of his gospel cannot be stopped even when the world tries they try a lot. He traded places with Barabbas and became the catalyst of missions across the world covering every portion of the atlas. If you're in need of rest, I know of a mattress. If you don't know Jesus, your future is tragic, but he gladly embraced tragedy so we could live in his presence of majesty. His presence is presence, and it's his presence that presents preciousness to a world of peasants. He is far from pretentious, but still loves those who are. He is the light of the world and hung the stars. He brings the dead to life and delivers life to the dead. He took a crown of thorns on his head so we could put crowns at his feet, and I can't wait until I get to kiss his feet that were nailed to a cross for me and for you and for every person around the world. He loves the world and I love his word because the word became flesh and in his flesh he demonstrated the word to the world. He is an example to every boy and every girl. He is a lover of black people. He is a lover of white people. He is a lover of the unchurched and the assembly under the steeple. He doesn't see the believers failures but still takes time to celebrate their faithfulness. It's the power of the spirit that enables us and gives us boldness when the world labels us and if you want to label me please call me a Jesus freak if that freaks you out good because it's better to be good with God than to fight being misunderstood by a world that could never understand so let it be understood that I don't worship man we worship Jesus and although he doesn't need us he still sees us and pleads with us to run to the cross where he bled for us his heart bleeds for us his heart grieves for us but still graciously grants us a pardon for our treason in a season where the world tries to explain away the work of the spirit with human reasoning there is a reason they can't because the spirit is like the wind and the wind cannot be seen but loved is the one who believes without seeing the unseen I'm telling you today that Jesus is something he's something more He's something great, and if you want to know him, you don't have to wait. He stands at the narrow path with a key to the gate, and you only have to reach out and embrace his grace. I don't care who's president. I have the king who is always present. I don't care who holds musical celebrity. The voice of the Lord will always be the sweetest melody. I don't care who owns the riches of the globe. My Jesus holds more wealth than one ruby on his robe. I don't care who is the strongest or the fastest. Nothing matches the creator of the universe and his immortal, infinite status. I don't care about religious leaders who died and stayed dead. I'll only worship the one who conquered death and wears a crown on his head. His name is Jesus, and I'm telling you, he's something. He was faithful yesterday, and he is faithful today. I can feel his presence whenever I pray. And when the time comes for me to fade away, I'll remember the day I heard him say, My name is Jesus. Jesus, 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 till the day I die. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the one who created us. It's Jesus who gives us new life and redemption. It's Jesus who created this thing called the church, and it's Jesus who gives the church its purpose. It's all about Jesus. Till the day I die, it's all about Jesus. Now, we have just come off a series together where we have watched the first century church. They had nothing. They really had nothing. They didn't have fancy facilities or really nice buildings. They didn't have budgets that they would vote on every year. They didn't even have great paid leadership. All the first century church had was until the day they died. 
All they had was Jesus, and yet that first century church was capable of overcoming the greatest power on earth called the Roman Empire. And they did it by? That's it. That is all they had. Somebody has said this, when Jesus is all you have, you realize that he's all you've ever needed. Another man, a very brilliant man, said something along those lines. His name is C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, he who has Jesus and everything else really has no more than he who has Jesus only. Think about that. Think about that. You see, the challenge for us today, being American Christians living in the time in which we live, we have Jesus and everything else. We've got everything else. But the challenge with having everything else is often that everything else actually becomes a distraction to Jesus. We, we often lean into all the other things and discover that Jesus is not ultimately sufficient and ultimately the one who can bring satisfaction to our hearts and our lives. So often, because we got Jesus, we put him over here and do everything else. When I want to tell you that if all you have is Jesus, 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 to the day you die, you've got more than everything you've ever needed. So in an effort to help us kind of keep this focus where it should be, uh, we're going to be doing a series together beginning today and quite frankly going through the end of the year. Now Christmas isn't that far away, so it's, it's not that that long. And the series we're going to be doing together is simply this. It's called Facets of Jesus. And so, like a diamond ring, if you were to hold it up to the light and twist it slightly, you would see that different angles of light would come off it. And it's beautiful. Every time you move it just a little bit, it shows more facets of the beauty of the diamond. That's what we're going to do with Jesus over the next few weeks together. We're going to be looking at him from different angles, through different names and different titles. And each of those angles reveals another part of the beauty of who Jesus Christ is to us. So today, we're going to begin by considering Jesus being the Logos, the Logos. Then next week, Lord willing, though Jesus the Logos has actually given me far more material than I know what to do with, we may actually pick this up next week, I don't know yet, uh, but there's a good chance next week we could also consider the idea of Jesus being Messiah. So that's this week and next week, and then the first week of November, we're going to take just a little bit of a break from this series. And uh, Matt Duransky is going to come up here and he's going to share during this time around something called the Reveal Survey. It is a survey that churches use to kind of help people figure out where they're at kind of in their own spiritual lives. And it's an anonymous survey that's done online. But what it does is it gives to us, the church, the knowledge we need to know where people are at and where our church is at in, in, a, in whole so we know the best way to serve the church. So Matt's going to come up here and explain all of that on that day, and then it will open up for two weeks for people to take it. So I won't bog us down now with all those considerations. So we're going to start today with Logos, Messiah. Then on the other side... Uh, of the first week of November, then we're going to pick up this series again, and we're going to consider Jesus as Savior, and then Jesus as Lord. Each one of these truths and titles shows us another facet of who he is. Now, at the end of November, the last Sunday in November, we're going to take another little break in this series, and uh, let's see, Matt Duransky again. Hey, Matt, you're getting a lot of time up here, man. Matt Duransky is going to come up, and he's actually going to speak on the topic of, of elders, because we are quickly encroaching upon the end of the year where we hold our annual business meeting as a church. And one of the things we're actively considering is moving from a, the church government that we have called a council towards what we believe is a more biblical model called eldership. So Matt's going to come and lay out the scriptures for us again. I did this back when we were doing the Titus series. But he's going to come back and lay that out again. And at the end of that day, we're going to stand up four gentlemen before you and ask you to consider them to be the elders over this work. Then the next Sunday, the first Sunday of, of December, thank you, thank you, I needed that. First Sunday of December, Jack Sup 
is actually going to come up here and take this position. And he's actually going to talk about the implications of moving towards this form of church government for our church, Grace Church. And he's also going to hand out uh, bylaws so that we can vote on our transformation of bylaws by the December the 17th, which will be our annual business meeting. So all that to say, we're taking a couple of breaks in the series. One for the reveal survey, which actually will help feed into other things. And then we're going to take that break for the talk on eldership. And then December the 7th, oh, let's see, December the 10th, we're going to pick up from Isaiah 9-6. This one shall be called Mighty God. This one shall be called the Everlasting Father. This one shall be called the Prince of Peace. December the 24th, that's Christmas Eve. So this series, along with a couple of breaks, will take us through this time through the end of the year. May we never forget that it is all about until the day I die. It's all about Jesus. With that in mind, I invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn with me uh, to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 this morning. And um, if you don't have your Bible, I want to invite you to take one of those black Bibles under the chair in front of you. It's called our Worship Bible. And turn to page 886. 886. Today we're looking at Jesus as Logos. Logos. And so we actually have this term with a capital as a, as a title for the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, found in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and ultimately verse 14. So notice, the Apostle John wrote these words at the beginning of his life treatment of the person of Jesus Christ, called the Gospel of John. He said this, "...in the beginning was the Word." And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, coming down to verse 14, he says this astonishing truth, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So this word logos that uh, we're considering together actually is the Greek word behind John's use of the word word. Does that make sense? So in the Greek language behind the word word is this term called logos. Now the word logos is used 330 times in the New Testament. And there's only a handful of times primarily here where it's capitalized and used as an actual reference for the person of Jesus Christ. So all that to say, of all the names of Christ and of all the, the things that are applied to who he is, this one is used very infrequently in the Bible. And yet, in the first 300 years of the life of the church, there was no title that captured the attention of the church more than this title of him being the Logos. And the reason for that is this. It was the burden of the church to carry out the mission of Christ, which was to take the gospel to all peoples. Amen? That's what the church's mission has always been. And so they were not only concerned about taking the gospel to the masses, largely uneducated, many of them who were slaves, but they were also concerned that Jesus Christ be put into the marketplace of ideas, and that the philosophers and the Greek and Hebrew intellectuals also be challenged by who Jesus Christ is. And that's really what John does here by using the term logos as a reference to the person of Jesus Christ. The word logos is, is packed with all kinds of meaning that has come up through many hundreds of years prior to his use of it. And most of it comes out of uh, uh, Greek thinking, Greek philosophy. And so he chose to apply this word to Jesus in an effort to capture the Greek mindset of his day. It is such a full-orbed concept. It is so packed with meaning that all I'm going to be able to do in the time that we have together this morning is literally scratch the surface 
of all that the term logos actually conveys concerning this person called Jesus. But what I captured just today has been both mind and heart exploding for me. And I hope that maybe God will use what we're talking about today to expand your mind, but better still, expand your heart about who this one Jesus truly is. So today, of all the ways I could have tackled this, I'm going to tackle this around the understanding that Logos, Logos was considered in Greek thought to be the underlying hidden, the underlying lying, uh, unifying principle behind all things. Let me explain. Let me explain. Here we have uh, what is an artist's conception of the temple of Artemis. It was considered one of the great eight wonders of the world back in its day. Now, the temple of Artemis, also known as the temple to Diana, uh, was built in the city of Ephesus in western Turkey today. Now, what made this so significant and so incredible is that it was Ephesus where John, the writer of the Gospel of John, largely lived and carried out his ministry. It is believed that he wrote the Gospel of John from the city of Ephesus. And as any good writer would do, he would know his culture and he would understand who their heroes were in an effort to try and convey the truth of who Jesus is and the message of the gospel. So what John did is he, he knew the history of the city of Ephesus and he knew that there was one man that was one of their heroes. That's, that man's name was a man by the name of Heraclitus. Heraclitus. He lived 500 years before John wrote the Gospel of John from the city of Ephesus. Now Heraclitus was one of the earliest of the philosophers we have in Greek history. He is what's called an ancient pre-Socratic philosopher, pre-Socrates. He was a brilliant man and probably a little odd. Now, I say that because he is often referred to as the weeping philosopher. We don't exactly know why he got that kind of title, but you know, friends, there is just a tiny line of difference between genius and craziness. And it's very likely this man kind of lived in that realm of being, on the one hand, brilliant, and on the other hand, really odd. We don't really know much about him, and we only have a scant few documents left uh, that we can actually analyze today. Now, you've got to remember, this is 500 years before the, 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 the first century. So 500 BC, this man was a thinker, and he was weighing deep, deep issues. He was a man who loved to study nature, and he was consumed with the idea of things called paradoxes. Paradoxes. Things that seemed to be contradictions or things that had multiple meanings. Things that seemed to always be in tension with one another. And yet there was something that seemed to hold them all together and make them work. He was weighing all this, thinking about all this, observing nature and people and life. And this is a man who... Um, also realize that there's really only one thing that's constant, and that is the reality of change. He knew that these paradoxes, that these, these um, opposites, if you will, these, these uniquely different things that always seem to be in tension with one another, but he also realized that everything was always in the state of change. But behind it all, there was kind of a hidden harmony that was playing out. This is a man who coined, and these phrases have been attributed to Heraclitus, uh, is this, there is nothing permanent except change. Ever heard of that one? There is nothing permanent except change. That's the only permanent thing there is, according to Heraclitus. He also said this, and this is pretty good. I've heard this before. I didn't know it was him. He said, no man steps into the same river twice, for it's not the same river, and he's not the same man. Think about that. So he was a man who was a deep, deep thinker. And Heraclitus postulated 
that in light of all these paradoxes and multiple meanings and tensions and apparent contradiction, that there was something behind it all. That was somehow holding it all together, making it all possible, and giving it meaning and purpose in our world. He called that unique force the logos. The logos. The unifying force or principle of opposites in our world that brings meaning and significance out of all things. In fact, his writings, he used this term. And again, we only have a scant few of his writings left. But he used this term. All things come to pass in accordance with the Logos. So he believed that the answer to much of what was going on behind the scenes could be attributed to this force. This principle referred to as the Logos. Now, John, 500 years later, this famous citizen had put this idea out into Greek thought. 500 years later, the Apostle John is writing his gospel, and he says this, In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Do you see what he's doing? Do you see what he's doing? He is pulling an Apostle Paul. It says this in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul was in another Greek city of high thought, Athens. And as he was walking around in Athens, he came across yet another God, except this one said to the unknown God, because they didn't want to leave anybody out. They had all kinds of other gods, so they had this one statue to the unknown God. And so it says this in Acts chapter 17 and verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. That's a cool thing. Yeah, we're all religious people. For I was passing along and I observed the objects of your worship. And I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I now proclaim to you. Did you see what Paul did? He found a connecting point between their thought and the person of Jesus, and he proclaimed Christ to them. Brilliant! Brilliant! And so that's what John is doing here. He wrote his Gospel of John, we believe, for the whole world to partake of. But Greek thought dominated the day. And so what John did was he not only spoke to the reality of the people who lived in Ephesus because he chose to use their, their uh, great uh, historic figure, but he also chose to connect Jesus to Greek thought, trying to create a bridge over which men can pass to understand who Jesus is. So if you will, not unlike uh, what the Apostle Paul does here, let me just say to you kind of what I think he was doing. If he pulled a Paul, it would go like this. Men of Ephesus, you curious Greeks, always seeking knowledge and never coming to understanding, this one whom you believe to be the underlying unifying force that brings order to all things. This one I proclaim to you. His name is Jesus and he is God. That's what he's doing here in these opening words of his gospel. Because the reason John wrote the gospel of John, if you have your finger, flip back to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, his purpose in writing his book, the Gospel of John, is laid out in John chapter 20 and verse 30. It says this, John in writing his book, he said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the, midst, in the presence of his disciples, which are not even written in this book or the account of uh, the life of Christ that I've written. But I wrote these so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So what John was doing is he was building a bridge. A bridge between where the Greeks lived and their understanding of Greek philosophy. Here they are. But here's where he wanted them to be. He wanted them to know Jesus. So he built a bridge between where they were and Jesus by using this Greek term, logos, to help them walk over the bridge to understanding their need of Jesus Christ. Beautiful, beautiful. 
And so he built a bridge in his culture of his day in an effort for people to meet and to know the living Christ. Because, my friends, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And our mission is to take Jesus to all peoples. So he did something kind of risky. He borrowed a concept from Greek thought and applied it to none other than Jesus. Friends, um, we have a bridge we're building. We have a bridge into our community that we are seeking to construct. And that bridge that we are building to take people from where they are to where they need to go is this thing that we're calling Candy Town. It's a bridge. That's all it is. Now we're going to give out candy and people are going to have a fun time and kids are going to bounce around and parents are going to be happy and people are going to eat food and it's going to be a grand time. But please don't misunderstand the purpose of Candy Town. It's not to give kids candy. It's not even to give the parents a good time. What we're doing is we're trying to engage our culture where they are and help them to take this point of bridge into who we are so they can meet Jesus. That's the point behind Candy Town. That's the reason it exists. Now, let me just say this. The nature of a bridge is to get stepped on, right? So, you know, anytime you try to somehow connect the culture to biblical thought by creating a bridge, you always create controversy. Sometimes without, but generally within. Some people believe that the Apostle John overstepped his bounds by applying this Greek term logos to the person of Jesus Christ. Because there was in that day uh, something called docetism. It's a division of physical and spiritual. And there is this kind of pulling apart of the physical and the spiritual. And it was believed that the physical was ultimately insignificant, didn't matter, and you could live any way you wanted because all the spiritual was done over here in this kind of spiritual realm. So they literally took the physical and the spiritual and pulled them apart and said, hey, you can live any way you want because the physical doesn't matter. Your spiritual part is taken care of by God, which is a lie. If you really know God, it will transform how you live your life in the physical. But a second thing that they said is this. Jesus Christ, while he appeared to be in the flesh, being God, he could not truly be in the flesh. So it was merely an appearance. This is what they call early Gnosticism. This is merely the appearance of Jesus. It's not really full-fledged Jesus. And that all came out of Greek thought. It came out of, out of uh, Socrates. And so by John using this term from Greek thought, a lot of people felt like he was just substantiating some of the trials that were going on in the early church. I think the reason John wrote 1 John and began it with these words is I think he was answering his critics. He was trying to quiet down what was going on in his day. Listen, 1 John, the same man who wrote the Gospel of John, wrote 1 John, he said this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands. He was physical. He was real. It was God in the flesh, not a mere apparition or, or some kind of ghost. Concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you eternal life, which was, in the, which was with the Father, and has been made manifest to us. I think John took some hits for this. Because he built a bridge from Greek thought into Christianity, and people are like, John, you're causing problems! The first church said, thank you, John. For 300 years now, we can wrestle with the philosophers and all the educated academics, and we can show them that this is what they've been looking for all their lives. All that to say, when you build a bridge, the nature of a bridge is to be stepped on. It's sometimes hard. Um, we made a little bit of an error. Uh, rather than calling it Candy Town Outreach, we actually put the word Halloween Outreach on there. And some of you are like, oh, you can't do that. You can't call it Halloween. Well, what is it called then? It's Halloween, right? October 31st is Halloween. So we're constructing a bridge. It's called Halloween. You, we're calling it candy time for our sakes, not theirs. It's so that we can tolerate it, not them, because they all call it Halloween. 
But our goal is to build a bridge from where they're at. We're using Halloween to get them where they need to be. And his name is Jesus. So all that to say the nature of a bridge is to get stepped on. And sometimes when you risk to try and take the gospel to people's, you get stepped on. It's painful. People walk over you. It happens. It happens sometimes within the church. And you know what? We're going to have people show up that night, and they're not going to be grateful. They're not going to be thankful at all. They're just going to assume that, hey, I've had one hot dog. I want three more for nothing. You know, so, so what I want you to understand is this. In order to get people from where they are to where we want them to be, we're going to get walked on. It is what happens. Anytime you try to bridge between where people are and where Jesus Christ is, it's always a painful process. Questions and doubts and challenges, and they're not always grateful or happy. But it's part of the process to get people where they need to be. His name is, you got it, you got it. So with that in mind, in the reality that we have this bridge that we're constructing to help us connect our community to the person of Jesus, I just want to highlight again, we need more constructors. We need more people to help us build this bridge. Uh, Dennis laid out quite definitely some of the needs we have. We need 12 vehicles, 12 vehicles. I think we have two or three already isolated, but we need 12 vehicles. You'll put up your trunk, and we'll fill it with candy, and the kids will come. We need more vehicles, please. If you have a vehicle that you can use in this way, just decorate it a little bit. We'll give you candy to fill it. But the people who give you the candy to fill it is us. So we need more candy to fill it. So all the way around, we're building a bridge. We just need more work, workers, to get this bridge constructed. Please help us build this bridge to our community so that we can see people ultimately know Jesus. That's the only reason we're doing this. We're not celebrating Halloween. We're not exalting that holiday. We're using that holiday for our own purposes, for the glory of God. So, all that to say, John used the, uh, this idea of Greek thought to ultimately winsomely speak into the culture of his day, picking up on something that people already understood as a unifying principle behind all things, and connected that to Jesus I think he took heat for it. I think a lot of people really struggled with it, but it actually opened a number of doors with academia and with philosophers in the process. So John used the term logos to build a bridge, to connect Greeks to the gospel. But the challenge is this. Why don't more people get it? (laughs) Ever ask yourself that question? Why does it seem that so few people really want or desire Jesus with their lives? Now again, something that Heraclitus said, 500 BC, I think John picked up on, and he actually wrote into his gospel. You see, Heraclitus had much the same concern. He said this, and this is where that statement is fit into. Again, we only have a handful of of fragments left over from this man's uh, writings. But this is what Heraclitus said. The Logos always uh, holds always. This Logos holds always. In other words, in his mind, it is an underlying universal principle. It's just true. In In his thinking, it was just obvious. But he went on to say this. But humans always prove unable to understand it. Both before hearing it, it should be obvious. He's behind everything. And, he goes on to say, when they have heard it, they don't get it. For this, for though all things come to be in accordance with this logos, humans are like inexperienced, are are the inexperienced when they experience such words and deeds as I set out. You can hear his heart. This is a philosopher. He wants to inform people. And so he's saying, don't you see the obvious paradoxes? Can't you see these contradictions? Don't you feel the tension in all these things? Behind it all is the Logos. And he's waiting for people's eyes to go, yeah, it's the Logos. And people are like, Heraclitus, you're nuts. People weren't getting it. And he lamented that people didn't understand what to him was so obvious. Do you ever feel like that when you try to share Jesus with somebody? It's like, it's like, it's like, he's wonderful. 
Oh my gosh, he rescued me from myself. He took me off a path that was on the way to self-destruction. And if nothing changed that, it would have been ultimate destruction. He pulled me off that path. He saved my life. He gave me a life worth living. I want to share him with you. And people are like, huh? It's like, what? It's like, isn't it obvious? No. It's like, hello, why don't people get it? Well, John actually wondered that or expressed that when he wrote this in in John chapter 1. He said this in verse 4. In him, the logos, Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men, all men. Isn't it obvious? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Actually, the word overcome there, I don't think is the best translation of the word. I really think the best translation of that word is could not comprehend it. It could not understand it. So Jesus comes, and he's the light of life, the light that lights every man. And it's like, nobody got it. Only a handful of people by the time he was dead, 120 in an upper room somewhere, got it. It's like, why? Why? And he goes on to say this. The true light, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't even receive him. You can almost hear Heraclitus here. Why don't people get it? Why don't people understand it? It's so obvious to him that the Logos was behind all things and made all things ultimately coherent. John's saying much the same thing. We put Jesus forward to so many people, and so many people are like, I don't see what you're talking about. I don't get it. Can I just say that as we construct this bridge to our community, as we hope to get people from where they are living their everyday lives, connecting them over this bridge that we're calling Candy Town, to a place where they might connect with us and they might understand who Jesus is, We can build the best bridge there is. I mean, it can be outstanding, it can be glorious, it can be amazing, it can be well-staffed, and we can all smile and shake everybody's hands. But it will all add up to nothing unless we're asking God to change hearts. You see, we can't change a heart. We just cannot change a heart. And try as we may to persuade and to conjole and to entreat and to encourage, the only way a heart gets changed, according to John, is this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, God gave the right to become the children of God, who were born. Notice, not of blood. No matter how much sweat and tears we put into this bridge, we're not going to ultimately help people be born, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of who? That's it. You see, no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. And so while we want to construct the best bridge we know how into our community to help them meet Jesus, we can't do that all through our own effort. We can only ultimately have people meet Jesus if the Father brings them to his Son. Which means this. Let's work as though it all depends on us. And then let's pray like it all depends on God. Amen? Oh my gosh, if we are praying God, it won't work. God calls us to ask him for what we long for. And we long for people to know Jesus. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to take just a couple of minutes. And uh, I'd like you to put somebody in mind that needs Jesus. Somebody who's outside of his grace. Somebody who has yet to bend the knee and embrace Christ with their life and is evidenced by the way they live their life. Put that person in mind. Now, if they have little kids, connect them to Candytown. If they're grandparents and they got little grandkids, connect them to Candytown. But unless we pray for their salvation, it won't matter. So right now, I'm going to give us just a few moments in the quiet of where you're sitting to entreat God in your heart for this person, those people, whoever they are in your world who need Jesus Christ. So let's just take a moment right now and entreat the Father to save the people that are in our lives, that are on our hearts. So let's just take a moment and pray.
who is it God has laid on your heart? See their face, know their name, share it with the Father, and ask that he would draw them to his Son. Father, thank you for the privilege of constructing this bridge. And I pray that we will work hard as a people to construct this bridge well, that the 31st would be extraordinary. But Father, we fully admit our inability to see anyone come to Christ. That is the work of the Spirit. That is the work of you, O God. And we pray right now that the people that are on our hearts and on our minds, you would bring to your son, Jesus. If you choose to use us, amen. If you choose not to use us, amen. However you wish to bring them to Christ, please do so. We thank you now in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, we're not done, so don't go anywhere. So, uh, we're looking at the term logos. I want to add one more voice to this mix, and then I want to just culminate it and, and call it a morning. Now, the voice I want to add to the mix is a man by the name of Pythagoras. Pythagoras. Perhaps you know him as the famous mathematician in his famous theorem called Pythagoras' Theorem of Geometry. But he was also called the father of philosophy. He likewise lived about 500 B.C. He was a, a contemporary of Heraclitus. And he likewise developed a lot of thinking around this one called the Logos. Now, since both of these men lived 500 years before Christ, people aren't really sure which one came first. Was it Heraclitus or was it Pythagoras? Or did they merely interact around each other's ideas? We really don't know how all that played out. But what Pythagoras did is he saw the Logos as behind all things, just as did Heraclitus. But he believed that not only did the Logos bring order and symmetry to the physical world, but he also believed that morally the Logos brought truth and beauty to the natural world. So rather than the universe merely being a chaos... He saw the universe. Now, the word universe is spectacular. It's a mongrelized word of two different words. Una, unity, verse, diversity. So even as they looked out and saw all the differences of everything, they said everything's so diverse, and yet somehow there's a unity of it all. So even the word universe carries this idea that there's something holding everything together. So when he looked out and he saw the universe, rather than referring to it as merely a chaos of things that just, just don't ever connect or things that are, are totally outside of where they should be, he coined the phrase, the word cosmos. This is Pythagoras' word. And the word cosmos means well-ordered, a well-ordered whole. Now again, the word cosmetics comes from the word cosmos. So ladies, when you put on your cosmetics, you're bringing beauty and order to your appearance. That's what it means. And so that's what he was saying. Behind all that we see is order and symmetry, beauty and truth. It's a cosmos. It's a well-ordered whole. This is what he added to this discussion concerning the Logos, the underlying principle of all things. The Logos not only brings all things into being, but he also brings order and symmetry, truth and beauty to both the physical and the moral realm. Jesus is the Logos. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ does. Let me show you just how unifying the person of Jesus Christ is and what he is going to accomplish ultimately by his work. Here we go. The Apostle Paul said this in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. He says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, Jesus, 
And for him, Jesus, and he is before all things, and in him, here's the key word, he holds all things together. He holds all things together. He's that unifying force, that unifying universal principle behind all things that holds all things together. His name is Jesus. Right now in the world of science, we have these theories, and they're very profound and very beautiful and elegant theories. One is the theory of general relativity given to us by Einstein, which controls big things, and it makes perfect sense. And on the other realm, on the small things, the area of, of atoms and quarks and, and particles, we have this thing called um, the theory that, that is behind all of uh, quantum physics. Now, the theory behind quantum physics is elegant and beautiful, and it works. And the theory behind general relativity is elegant and beautiful, and it works. But they don't work with each other. And so scientists are like, what is the, what is the theory of everything? What draws all things together? What is behind all of this that somehow makes it all work? His name is Jesus. He holds it all together. That's who he is. That's what he does. Sin naturally separates. And all things would go to chaos unless Jesus holds it together. And right now, he's actively holding together at the microscopic, at the subatomic level, all things. And if it weren't for Jesus being behind the scenes right now, holding things together, everything would be chaos. We would be gone. It would all be disintegrate. But Jesus is holding all things together. And he's not done. He's not done. He's actively bringing all things together. That's what Paul goes on to say in Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in him, Jesus is the fullness of God. And through him to, notice, reconcile. That is to bring back to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So get this, all things are scattered, he's holding it together, and ultimately Jesus is going to reconcile all things to himself. He's going to judge all those who are in rebellion and condemn them for eternity. He's going to embrace his own. He's going to have a kingdom and then a renovation of the earth, and all things will ultimately find their significance, place, and priority, and purpose in Jesus. This is this one. This is the Logos. This is what he does. This is who he is. He is behind all things, holding all things together. And the day is coming. The day is coming. When all things are subjected to him, God the Father, then the Son himself will also be subjected to God the Father, who will put all things under subjection under him, that God may be all in all. That day's coming. The gospel will win. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, don't miss this, he's making peace by the blood of the cross. You see, we think of the gospel as only that which is going to save me. Well, it does. Praise God. It's good news. It saves you. But it doesn't just save me. It sanctifies me. It will ultimately see that I get glorified. It will ultimately lead to the renovation of all the earth. This is the gospel, friends. This is what Jesus does. I don't see many minds going, all I can hope is your hearts are going, wow, this is him? This is him. This is him. So I'm just going to close with this. If all this is true, and the Bible says it is true, then I want to ask you, where in your life today do you need the power of the gospel? Where in your life today do you need the good news that Jesus Christ is the unifying power that brings all things back together? You see, the sun is the center of our solar system. And because the sun is at the center of our solar system, all things naturally order themselves around it due to the gravitational pull of the sun. That's very true with the Son of God. If Jesus Christ is at the center... The gravitational pull of his love and his grace naturally brings order out of chaos. Naturally brings beauty into our lives. The problem is, too often, Jesus is over there and everything else has got our minds. And our lives are filled with chaos. Why is it this relationship isn't working? Why are my finances such a stinking mess? There's never enough money to go around. Why is my health so broken? Could I say that if you take Jesus Christ and you bring him into the center of your life, that naturally his presence 
brings order and beauty, wholeness and peace. The Jews called it shalom into your experience. Today, where does he need to give you shalom? I urge you to invite him into the center of whatever it is, that relationship that is just in chaos, those finances that are just in chaos, my job situation that is just in chaos, my, my health which is just in chaos. Invite him in and watch him do what he does. Friends, the gospel will not change everything yet, but the gospel can change anything now. And maybe there's something in your life that needs to be dramatically changed. It is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus that brings that transformation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Oh my goodness, thank you for the plan of salvation that in eternity past you saw our plight. And you enlisted your son and he willingly placed himself in submission and he was willing to carry out this plan of redemption, living the life we could not live and dying the death we deserve to die. Thank you that Jesus doesn't just bring us into relationship with you, but his desire is to be the center of our lives and to bring beauty out of our lives, to bring symmetry and order out of our lives. I pray today that we would see Jesus as the Logos, that which underlies all things and brings beauty. Lord, right now, there are folks wrestling with parts of their lives. There are parts of their lives that are in just chaos. I pray that right now, repentance would happen for the part in the chaos we've played, and then faith in the Logos, asking him to center himself in the middle of whatever it is, that you would bring beauty, order, shalom, peace, wholeness out of this. We thank you now. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Don't ever forget, it's all about till the day I die. God bless you. <laughs>